Good morning to everyone in the Diocese of Orange and elsewhere in Southern California. You're listening to Orange County Catholic Radio on AM 1000. We're coming to you through the good offices of Immaculate Heart Radio today and every Thursday morning from 11 to noon from our studios on the campus of Christ Cathedral in Garden Grove. I'm Patrick Mott. About a baseball's throw away from our studios is the former Crystal Cathedral, now known as Christ Cathedral, where work is continuing on the cathedral's transformation from its previous configuration into a Catholic worship space. The design team in charge of the work is called the project The Challenge of a Lifetime. This applies not just to the architectural and aesthetic and religious aspects of the job, but to the technical challenges that the team faces. We're going to talk about three of those challenges today with Rob Neal. Rob is a managing partner of Hager Pacific Properties in Newport Beach and a member of the Architecture and Renovation Committee for Christ Cathedral. And he's speaking to us from Hawaii. Rob, aloha, and welcome back to the show. Aloha, Pat. Rob, let's go right to uh, some of the issues I think that have been a challenge for the cathedral for many years. First of all, heat and light issues, they've always been associated with the structure. Uh, How come? Well, you know, you're right, Pat. There's some very famous old photos where you would see the uh, congregants sitting in the pews listening to uh, Reverend Schuler's great uh, homilies, and uh, they would be wearing sunglasses which is a pretty unusual eyewear for the inside of a church. And the reason they were wearing sunglasses, of course, is not just the overall light that was coming in, but also the glare. Because uh, when they would hold services either in the morning or in the afternoon, when the sun was either low in the east coming up or low in the west setting, uh, there was a tremendous amount of glare. And so the Crystal Cathedral, of course, is aptly named. It's comprised of 10,660 panes of glass, not that I've counted them all, but I've been tempted. And so you have just a tremendous amount of light and energy coming into the building. And then, of course, we had the problems in the building with uh, dissipation of heat, because most people don't know this, but the the cathedral pad is not air-conditioned, never has been. And uh, it was originally cooled by a process called convective cooling where basically what would happen is the hot air, of course, rises, and it would rise to the top of the what they call the chimney in the cathedral, which is almost 129 feet high, and it would exhaust out through vents, and as this hot air rose and moved out of the building, cold air would take its place in at the ground level, and there were vents there to allow the cold air to come in. Anyway, that was the theory. And it worked great until the ambient air temperature got to about 80 degrees, and then the whole thing stopped working so great, and it just got warmer and warmer and warmer, especially when you were up in those high balconies. And you know how high those balconies are. Well, that that had to be miserable up there. Well, it was, and um, I've had some conversations with some of the folks who used to sing in the choir. And, of course, they would wear those really heavy vestments, and they were relatively high, too. They were probably 30 feet up in the air, you know, in that choir loft right in front of the organ. And he said, uh, one of the fellows said, not only did we get a pounding headache from old Hazel Wright, the organ, but we were also dealing with heat exhaustion by the time we were done with the service. It was really tough duty. Oh, my gosh. Well, you've got this problem here. You've got to temper the effects of what is essentially probably the world's biggest greenhouse. Tell us about the eventual solution that has been worked out. Yeah, and it's a fascinating topic, Pat, because it's one, I must tell you, consumed a lot of our energy and time and and thought. 
there are many issues that we've had to solve there because, again, think we're taking a uh, really a Protestant cathedral and we're converting it into a place of a Catholic cathedral, which has its own liturgical challenges. But dealing with these issues of heat and energy and life uh, really were mechanical challenges that no one really knew how to deal with. Our problem was is that we have an all-glass building, and we wanted to work with the building. We didn't want to lose the great elements of, you know, this this clear glass that creates such a remarkable atmosphere. Really, uh, Schuler said that he wanted it to be evocative of his very first church, which, as we all know, was outdoors yes. in the Orange Drive-In. And so we needed to come up with something that would lower the light levels, not just because of heat uh, and glare, but also because, you know, the, the liturgy for Catholics is very contemplative. And so we're in areas and periods during the worship where it's prayerful, and a lower light level is uh, conducive to that. So we wanted to lower the light levels as well, and we tried many, many different types of strategies. Uh, we looked at things as simple as tinting the glass. We looked at a big scrim that could be draped over it. Uh, we looked at many different things, and we found that all of them had drawbacks. And finally, after probably our fifth or sixth iteration, the design team at Johnson Payne came up with something that we think is brilliant and will not only solve all of those issues, but in its own right will be somewhat of an artistic installation. And so what it is is it's called the quatrefoil system, and it's a series of um, panels. Some have called them flower petals. Some have called them sort of the corners of a box top. But they're set up so that there would be four of these petals for each section of glass, and the petals themselves would be open to different angles. So the aperture, the opening, for some would be zero, meaning they'd be closed, some would be 15, 30, some 45 degrees. And then a computer program has been designed, an algorithm, that looks at the solar path of travel. So that's the travel of the sun as it goes over our building each and every day. And of course, that changes a little bit seasonally, but it's still more or less the same path, the same arc. But the computer looks at that and then looks at where the building is, and then it populates these petals across the top of the building on the inside between the glass and, of course, the, the parishioners. And so it modulates the light. And in areas like the north, where you actually don't have as much of a problem with the heat and the sun, there are more open shades. And in areas in the south, where you get more of the sun and the heat and the glare, there are more uh, shades that are closed. But while each aperture will be fixed in place, overall, it will look to be a very, very dynamic, almost an artistic installation that will do all of these very important things of managing heat, managing glare, managing light, but also something very important, it's going to manage sound. And for those of us who were in the Crystal Cathedral during its heyday, we know that one of the issues you have with a building that's comprised of mostly flat, hard surfaces is you have a lot of acoustical issues. You either make the organ sound real good, or the choir sound real good, or the spoken word sound real good, but getting all three of those to sound great is a real challenge in a building of this design. And so we think the quatrefoil system 
will help us meet those goals. Well, I remember from years past going to uh, the old Crystal Cathedral to hear the Dave Brubeck Quartet play. And I thought, well, okay, an ensemble this small is not going to ring like crazy in this space like a large choir or an orchestra would, but they did. The place was a real barn acoustically, and I thought, how in the world are you ever going to solve something like this? But you need surfaces, right, for the sound to carry them off of or to be absorbed by, yes? That's right, and you need a lot of different types of surfaces, and so that's the beauty of this quatrefoil system. As I said, you know, there's not just a series of panels that are all open to the same degree or all closed to the same degree. They're varied dramatically, and uh, we have, as you know, a large model in the exhibition center, in the Cathedral Cultural Center, which gives some good detailing to the quatrefoils. And you can see it's a very complex, very involved surface, and all of that will manage that sound very nicely. You know, one last thing that I might note on the quatrefoil, one of the benefits that really we never thought about and only became apparent after we had finalized the design is that with the quatrefoil system, we'll be able to introduce lighting to each of these petals. Now, why is that significant, Pat? The reason is, is that at night, ever since it was built, this beautiful, iconic, unusual envelope of a building, which is really known worldwide, at night, it virtually disappears. It really does. It does. It becomes a black, inky void, almost like what happens to this beautiful ocean in Hawaii that I'm looking at. During the night, it just goes away, and it becomes this, this black void. And that's what the cathedral did, in part because when you shine light through the glass, it just keeps going. It doesn't reflect off and create an illuminated surface. Now, with the quatrefoils and the way we're going to light them, for the first time, since the building was built, let's say over 30 years, you're going to now have the envelope of this building at night fully illuminated. And it should be, based on the renderings I've seen, unbelievably striking. It's very, very exciting. It sounds like it's something you might even be able to see from space. You know, (laughs) I don't know. I'll have to think about that. It's certainly large enough, and there'll be enough energy. I had been working to make sure that it would be seen from the five freeway, but I like your goals even better, Pat. I like (laughs) We'll work on that. (laughs) Well, uh, tell me one last thing about the quatrefoil system here. This is going to be quite an engineering feat to put all of those up there. How many are there going to be again? You know, there's 10,660 panes of glass, but... Several of the panes of glass will come together to form one unit that will have a set of these four quatrefoils. So the quatrefoil system will probably have about 3,000 or so of these petals. And our only challenge with the quatrefoil system, frankly, was that no one's ever done it before. Other than that, not much of an issue. So all of the normal considerations you have of how big they should be, what the size should be, what the material should be, how they'll be installed, how they'll be attached to the space frame, all of these are being worked out now with a variety of vendors. And I must tell you, all of these vendors and subcontractors are very excited by the challenge because they know that when they're done, they're going to have something quite unique. 
Well, Rob Neal, thanks so much once again for being with us. We'll be checking in with you and with the other restoration team members from time to time to get updates on this landmark project. When we come back shortly, we'll hear about a unique ministry available to the faithful of the Diocese of Orange who are widowed, separated, or divorced. It's called Beginning Experience, and it can be a life changer. Stick with us. with Sandy Poseo and Robert Gokey of Beginning Experience, a ministry specifically for people who have been widowed, separated, or divorced. I'm going to quote uh, here from the Beginning Experience mission statement. Its purpose, it says, is to facilitate the grief resolution process for adults and children who have suffered a loss through death, divorce, or separation, thereby enabling them to again love themselves, others, and God. Very fine and ambitious words. Sandy, how does beginning experience put that into practical action initially? Because this is not a, a snap your fingers and it's fixed ministry, is it? This, it's, it's a process. It is definitely a process. The core of the beginning experience program is a weekend experience that starts on a Friday evening around 6.30, and it runs through Saturday, all day Saturday, and ends with a mass on Sunday afternoon. Afternoon. During this process, the participants go through various of the grief stages, and they do this by means of listening to presentations by previous participants, people that have been there themselves. It's all peer ministry on this. After listening to those presentations, they will be presented with questions that they will answer, go to a quiet spot, answer, and then in small group discussions, they can have those small group discussions. And it's an amazing way for, starts off with introspection and then it goes through trust and how you can deal with your own grief because the loss of a marriage can be either by divorce or by separation or by death. It's still the loss of a marriage and you're still grieving that loss. Well now this was built somewhat on the marriage encounter model, was it not? Yes, it was started in 1974 by a nun by the name of Sister Josephine Stewart. She and a divorced friend of hers went to a marriage encounter weekend in order to get ideas for an engagement encounter weekend that they were going to put together. And when they went through the whole the marriage encounter weekend, the divorced friend found that in answering questions that they were doing in the marriage encounter, she herself found peace and found understanding of a lot of the feelings that she had in her as a result of her divorce, and she found them being resolved and of peacefulness after going through this. So that's what Sister Josephine and her friend designed this whole program. It is a copyrighted program. Oh. Yes, it is. I'm not going to say it's scripted, but it is very regimented, and it follows the same pattern, and it's extremely successful. It has, it has specific structure. Exactly. Yes, it does. I want to look at some statistics that were posted on your website. These are very telling. There are 800,000 new widows and widowers every year. Half the marriages in the U.S. end in divorce. This is a little grim. More than 1.1 million children are affected every year by divorce. 
Divorce is the leading cause of childhood depression and suicide, and rates of drug abuse and teen pregnancy are higher for children of people who are divorced. So this is not only a ministry for adults, is it? No, it is not just a ministry for adults. There is also a beginning experience for children as well. We don't happen to have a group together here for Orange County, but there is one in Phoenix I know of for sure. And yes, we have found that the children of divorce have to suffer the the loss just as badly as the parents themselves. And it's very beneficial for them too. Robert, as uh, one who has been through the program and has uh, experienced everything, how, how successful do you think the program has been for you personally and for others that you've seen? I was widowed after a 27-year marriage. And it was a very short period of time afterwards. I saw, a, pro, I saw um, a brochure in the back of our church. It was very telling. The, at the time, the uh, mission statement was a weekend away for a lifetime of change. So I signed up, did the retreat, and I found it a very, very powerful experience. Uh, emotionally, it, it began uh, the recovery process. And during the, the retreat weekend it, itself on Saturday night, I experienced the most uh, powerful spiritual consolation in my life. I haven't experienced anything like it before. I haven't experienced anything like it since. And for me, I can look back. I did the retreat. I did the facilitator training. And my recovery from the the emotional loss of my marriage, it was the single most significant component in my recovery. I think one of my attitudes during the whole thing was if it didn't kill me, it was going to make me better. (laughs) And at the end of the day, I can say four years later or three years later when um, I continued to do retreats, uh, I kind of looked forward to the Sunday morning, which was really the event was you write a farewell letter to your spouse. And I could measure my progress over the two or three year period on Sunday morning because the talk went from crying, numbness, to sense of humor, to, and it was a, it was a benchmark. So my personal feeling, it's an under-publicized and underutilized ministry. And if you can show up and believe in the process, it is powerful. And it is not just a one weekend thing, is it? Uh, it's No, we have continuing beginning experience as well, which is a, a six-part follow-up to the weekend, which just reinforces what you do, and it just continues you on that road to recovery. And that, that will follow up the, the BE. Yeah, uh, Robert, I'm going to be the devil's advocate here for a minute and say, uh, okay, why couldn't you get the same sort of thing from good friends, from family members? Why couldn't you go to people that you were the closest to in your life and talk about these various topics that you talked about on the weekend. In essence, you are talking to people you may not have met before about things that are very, very intimate, yet it worked. I think the environment that you're set in, that you are just immersed for 72 hours, and you're in there with people in a like circumstance, so you all share something, and by the time the weekend's over, you have 14 new friends. 
And subsequently, the, the group of people that I went through and did it, um, I mean, they are part of your flesh and blood. Well, a big part of it, I would imagine, is that they've gone through the same thing, and maybe your friends and your family members have not. They well, don't have that direct experience. I don't. And the other part of it is I don't think, you know, I'm not sure that I want to burden somebody. The environment is conducive to being immersed in your own pain. And I don't think it could work any other way. Matter of fact, we have discouraged people that have wanted to commute to the weekend, uh, come and stay during the day, go home at night, and come back the following day. And I think that's the part and parcel is the commitment that you really make, body and soul, to go and immerse yourself in your uh, situation. What are some of the resources that the programs offer, uh, books, other things to help the uh, process along? Well, we start off with uh, the basic notebook that the people will be writing in. There's a lot of journaling in this. As I said, we give them questions that are pertinent to each of the sections that they're talking about, whether it be trust, whether it be guilt, whether it be retrospection, how they look at themselves. And that Plus uh, the manual, there is a manual that goes along with it that they get, and that's all for in the price of the weekend. Plus, if they decide that they want to become a facilitator themselves, there's a training manual and a, tra- and a training class that we put them through. Again, this is all peer ministry, so the people that are training them are people that have been through it themselves. I went through a weekend in 2010 myself, and I became a facilitator, and now I'm the trainer of the facilitators. <laughs> So, as Rob says, the you're in an environment that is non-threatening. There is no fear of recrimination or anyone in that room, in that large room or in the small group. Everything is kept confidential. Nothing leaves there. Nothing leaves the weekend with individuals. Obviously, it's not a dating site. It's not somewhere you go to look for a spouse if you're uh, widowed or divorced. It's primarily for and and solely for the spiritual growth and people that are stuck in their grief process and can't get moving forward. And I can't tell you, I can't overemphasize the effect that I have seen myself watching people walk in on Friday night very apprehensive of what they're getting themselves into and walking out, as Rob says, with 14 new friends on Sunday afternoon that are close friends. Again, because of the non-threatening atmosphere, people feel free to divulge. In a little less than a minute we have left, please tell us the best way for interested people to reach Beginning Experience and get the wheels moving. Well, there is a beginningexperience.org website that will get you in touch with the uh, main, the international. There is also, I have an email address for beoc2015.gmail.com. That's for the local Orange County. There are chapters in Los Angeles County, in Orange County, in San Diego County. There's one up in San Jose and one up in San Francisco. Those can all be reached from the beginningexperience.org site. Excellent. We would like to encourage folks, we have a weekend coming up in Orange, March 6th through 8th at the Pro Sanctity Center in Fullerton, and we would like to urge anyone who would like to attend one of our weekends to come to that March 6th through 8th. 
Very good. Sandy, Robert, many thanks for being on the show with us today. Lots of good and useful information for anyone who's been widowed, separated, or divorced. We'll be back after a short break with an old friend, Tita Smith, who's, well, she's pretty much everything. But in this case, she's with us wearing her hat as the executive director of Catholic Charities of Orange County, which is celebrating its 40th anniversary next year. Stay with us. County Catholic Radio is made possible by the generous support to the Orange Catholic Foundation, an independent not-for-profit organization raising funds to support the mission of the Catholic Church in the Diocese of Orange. To learn more about their vision, their mission, and about upcoming events, visit online www.orangecatholicfoundation.org. That's orangecatholicfoundation.org. We are back with someone who really should be about 10 or 20 people, but who is, trust me, just one person, our old friend Tita Smith. I can't tell you everything Tita does because we'd be here until next Christmas, but here's the Reader's Digest version. She's the Executive Director of Catholic Charities of Orange County. She served on the Orange Planning Commission from 1992 to 2004. She was elected to the City Council in 2004. She founded the Orange's Old Town Preservation Association. She served on the Orange Centennial Committee, the YWCA Advisory Board, the Orange Senior Center Board, and was Director of Youth and Young Adult Ministry at Holy Family Cathedral from 1978 through 1992. She is Orange County through and through, born at St. Joseph's Hospital, a fifth-generation resident of Orange. She went to Holy Family School, modern-day high school, and was in the first freshman class at UCI. And... She's the current mayor of Orange. Tita, we're all out of time, but thanks so much for being with us. <laughs> thank you, Patrick. That's a little embarrassing for you to have to read that. But nah. Thank you very much. Well, no, we, I want everybody know, to know who we're dealing with here. On with your Catholic Charities hat here. It's called Catholic Charities of Orange County. That's plural. This is a big organization with many facets, but if you could iris its mission down to two or three purposes, what would you say they were? For us, Catholic Charities is the go-to place for the poorest of the poor, Pat. Those for whom all other options have been exhausted, those are the people who come to Catholic Charities. They are our mission. Number two, we assist parishes. Our role is to assist parishes both in teaching Catholic social teachings and to implement them. So we give resources and referrals to parishes. We do trainings in parishes. We assist them with resources. And we also do things that no other agency does. For instance, we will renew a DMV registration. We will buy a single mom a set of tires. We will provide a train ticket to Mexico for a client. We just did this the other day, a client released from a local psychiatric hospital, and her family was in Mexico. We took her to the train station, bought her a ticket, gave her a day's worth of food, a new outfit, and sent her back to her family. We are the go-to for all of those interesting things that poor people 
need that no one else provides. It sounds like your motto is can do. That is definitely our motto. Isn't that the motto of the gospel? Absolutely. <laughs> and the Navy Seabees. Uh, <laughs> well, so much of the work of Catholic Charities has to do with providing these basic services like food and shelter, basic medical care, counseling to the poorest and the most marginalized. Is it difficult sometimes to persuade people in Orange County that poverty and great need exists here, almost side by side with the wealth with which Orange County is known? Is it part of your work to shine a light on the people who otherwise would be overlooked? It is part of our work to shine a light on the poor and marginalized, but it is not difficult to persuade people in Orange County. As you know, we Good. have one-third of our county population is Catholic, and those with a heart for the poor and answering the call to the gospel gravitate to Catholic charities. Uh, the most amazing thing to me is the unbelievable generosity of so very, very many people. It is interesting being in politics and charity at the same time. Um, I think some of the opposition to charity is often misinterpreted through politics, but in the church, there are plenty of people of all faiths who want to help those in need. Well, uh, in line with that, you just had your annual Mardi Gras not long ago. That's a, a very big deal for Catholic Charities every year. What's it all about, and how much did you raise? Have you had a chance to count yet? We haven't had exactly the opportunity to count everything, but we did seat over 400 guests. Our goal was to raise $250,000, and Fantastic. we think we did that. We may have slightly surpassed that. All of the people that come are there to support the poor, the marginalized, they're also there to honor a group of people that we choose every year. And this year was the Equestrian Order of the Holy Sepulchre of Jerusalem. And they themselves brought 150 members to the event. Wonderful. So we really thank them for that. Well, an another group that is associated with you that is also highly charitable in nature is the Catholic Charities Auxiliary. Tell us what that is and what it does. Catholic Charities is a group of amazing volunteers. Catholic Women. Catholic Charities Auxiliary is actually older than Catholic Charities Orange County. They were founded in 1974, two years before Catholic Charities Orange County was founded. And these are good-hearted women from all over the diocese, all ages. They associate with seven different chapters, which are the groupings of their parishes, you know, that are closest to their homes. Every year, they promise to raise for us $50,000. And last year, they raised for us $65,000. Wonderful. And the side benefit of that is these are Catholic women who then also socialize, shop together, share grandchildren pictures, end up saying the rosary together, go to mass together. It's just really a superb Catholic fellowship for women with the goal of assisting those in need through Catholic Charities Orange County. They're amazing. And every year they have the Catholic Charities Auxiliary Woman of the Year luncheon that I've been to on several occasions and have been amazed at, I guess the word is resumes for all these women. Uh, they, they do everything. Yes, it's pretty amazing. And that is the principal fundraiser for the ladies. It's in May. I'm sorry, I don't have the date exactly. On tip of my tongue, I think it's the third Thursday of May. But every year that I go to that, I am just amazed at as you say, Pat, the resumes of all those women are pretty typical of the commitment that women have to the church and their parishes, though. We're going to give you the 
website address for Catholic Charities in uh, just a couple of minutes, but I want to mention just a few of the things that you will find there. Some of the organizations, charitable groups, the specialties, the New Hope Crisis Counseling Hotline, Casa Santa Maria, the Colombian Disability Services, Community Outreach Services, the Cal Fresh Food Stamps Program, Counseling Center, the Doris Cantlay Center, Parish Ministry, Immigration Citizenship and Refugee Resettlement Center, Natural Family Planning Seminars. It goes on and on. One of the Catholic Charities programs that touches many people on many levels, and I uh, just wanted to single this out because I had the uh, wonderful opportunity to do a story on them uh, several months ago, is Camp Recreation. It's such a kick. Tell us a little about that. Camp Recreation is four camps that are held during the year for folks with intellectual disabilities or uh, some people say special needs. And the camp is an opportunity for those with intellectual disabilities to really come out of the isolation that so many of them live with and come to camp just to have crazy fun, to dance, swim, go on field trips, sing, make friends, and most importantly, to make memories. For most of our campers, it is the event of the year for them. They often go home and wash their clothes and pack up to be ready for next year. It also serves families. It gives them a respite so that they don't have to worry and offer the intensive care that might be needed for their loved one. And it also, for the volunteers, is a life-changing event. Each camper has its own 24-7 volunteer who is their buddy, and those are students uh, who are specially recruited from our Catholic high schools. And you talk about living the gospel. For these young people, it is a life-changing event. We have a waiting list of young people to serve in this way, and they've told us their life is never the same once they spend that week with their camper at Camp Recreation. I was so impressed with that. The, the kids absolutely love what they do out there. They they want to come back every year. Uh, I'm not surprised there's a waiting list. No, neither am I. And there's waiting lists on both ends for the camp and for the volunteers. My goodness. Well, now, I'm guessing that you would not be the executive director of Catholic Charities if you didn't love the work. And considering everything else you do, why is it rewarding for you? Well, I sort of accidentally bumped into Catholic Charities. Uh, Pat, I started out as a youth minister when I was in my late 20s and served for almost 20 years as a youth minister. And I decided I wanted to become a, a social worker and to help young people more than I was equipped to do. I had met so many kids with situations, broken homes, domestic violence in their family, drug addictions, things like that. I decided to become a social worker. And so I went to USC when I was 42, got my master's when I was 45. And my first job was at Catholic Charities Orange County. And I worked there for the first four years, um, starting on my license to be a counselor and uh, do a few other things. But I actually left Catholic Charities because I wanted to specialize more in being a therapist. So I went out and worked in the, the world of uh, chronic mental illness for a number of years. And then through a great circumstance, not enough time here to uh, discuss it, but I was uh, recruited back to Catholic Charities about eight years ago. And two years after that, the executive director decided to retire, and I competed uh, for the position. To me, I have always considered myself, since I was about 
26, a daughter of the church. And this is the way that I am a Catholic. Um, this is the way I choose to express my faith and share my faith uh, with the gospel call of Matthew, where Jesus said, uh, whatsoever you do to the least of my brothers and sisters, you do unto me. And it's a good fit for me. I'm not a good long range planner, but I'm a very good person in a crisis. And so every day uh, there are a number of fires to put out, a number of people to help. And to do that and be able to live my faith and also to engage so many other people in the work of living the gospel to me is very energizing and the joy of my life. Well, we are all so grateful that you're in the position and we thank you so much for your service. And if all this sounds good to you and you think you'd like to donate to Catholic Charities of Orange County, or maybe you'd like to become a volunteer, here is your online source, ccoc.org. Simple as that. Catholic Charities of Orange County, ccoc.org. Any other contacts beyond that that we should add? Or well, will, can, will that get you to what you need? That will get you to what you need, but you can also um, call our office at 714-347-9600, either if you know someone or are someone who needs uh, outreach from Catholic Charities or if you would like to become a volunteer or to uh, provide a donation. We take donations of in-kind goods as well, not just uh, cash and financial support, but all the things that the poor can use, we also take. Excellent. Tita Smith, thanks from all of us for taking time out of your day to join us here in the studio. Best of luck with Catholic Charities and everything. Thank you very much. Next up, food for Lent that is definitely not generic tuna casserole or fish sticks. Don't go away. Vianney, a live one-man drama performed by Leonardo DeFilippis of St. Luke Productions, will be presented at Christ Cathedral at Free Theater on Friday, March 27th at 7 p.m., Saturday, March 28th at 2 p.m. and 7 p.m., and Sunday, March 29th at 12 noon. The event is sponsored by the Diocese of Orange. Experience firsthand the story of St. John Vianney, the humble priest who battled the devil to save souls, and whose life was so remarkable that he was recognized as the model saint for all priests and laity. Filled with all the elements of professional theater, the production incorporates a multimedia component offering a full cast of characters. The production is suitable for ages 9 and up, and admission is $20. There will be a reception 30 minutes before each performance. That's Vianney at Christ Cathedral in Freed Theater in Garden Grove, Friday, March 27th at 7 p.m., Saturday, March 28th at 2 p.m. and 7 p.m., and Sunday, March 29th at 12 noon. For tickets and additional info, visit ChristCathedralCalifornia.org forward slash events. Welcome back to AM 1000 Orange County Catholic Radio. I'm Patrick Mott. You're going to want to get out your pencils and paper for our final segment today because we've got the man who brought some of the healthiest fast food anywhere to Orange County, Wing Lamb, the co-founder of Wahoo's Fish Tacos. Thanks very much for being with us. Thanks, Pat, for having me on the show. Just in case you've been living in some place like Lapland for the last quarter century, Wing started Wahoo's with his brothers Mingo and Eduardo Lee in 1988 in Costa Mesa. The three brothers were surfers who used to go to Mexico to catch waves, and they loved the fish tacos that were available there. So when Wahoo's opened its first location, it catered to the surfing crowd and sold fish tacos that were grilled rather than fried. The brothers eventually put together a big menu of healthy items that take their influences from 
Brazil, Asia, and America, and today there are nearly 70 Wahoos locations in seven western states. Wing, as you might imagine, is something of an expert on healthy, tasty, meatless dishes, and he's here to share a little bit about that with us, just in time for Lent. First of all, I'm guessing one of the most important things to remember when you're putting together meatless dishes is to use the freshest ingredients you can get, right? Absolutely. And tell us uh, about that. If you're a person at home, <clears throat> are we talking about your local supermarket? Are we talking about a <laughs> farmer's market? Is it just a matter of not using something that's been sitting around for a while? Yeah, I mean, the idea, like, you know, the old days used to get, you know, literally tuna out of a can. I mean, it's still okay, right? But it, God knows how long that's been sitting there, right? Mm -hmm. Nothing wrong with it. But why not try some fresh fish, right? So we got some great selections out there. Santa Monica Seafood, uh, places like the Crab Cooker, Costco. I mean, great fresh fish, right? And that's what you're looking for, something that's really nice and seasonal. So don't try to get something that is not in season because different fishes, you know, come around different parts of the year. And just find something that's really good and fresh. So you start with a basic, you know, fresh ingredient, which is fish. Then off of that, depending on how spicy or mild you like your salsa, you add a little more jalapeno, a little more serrano, take a little bit off of it, right? Mm -hmm. So remember, the most important thing about those peppers, it's the seeds that adds the heat. So once you have that, then you can decide, you know, again, uh, how much tomato, onions, and all the, you know, the cilantro. It's to your taste, a little salt and pepper. So again, it's very simple. It's stuff that you can get at a farmer's market, preferably, because that you know that's going to be pretty much organic. A little bit pricey, but very fresh and very local. Now, I imagine you can get quite a lot of good ideas about uh, what to put together yourself at home just by going to any one of your uh, locations and trying uh, several uh, different dishes on for size. Yeah, I mean, we can do, you know, something that's simply grilled. We can do something that's spicy, you know, the Cajun spices on it. And we also offer wild-caught salmon. So we got a nice variety of either wahoo, mahi-mahi, or salmon. And that's just on the fish side. And then we're a little Asian in us, so we do have our, the tofu for the vegetarians in all of us. Mm -hmm. And then we got some shrimp as well. So we got some really nice selection for the non-meat eaters. And a little bit of a uh, Brazilian background as well. Tell us about that. Well, I always tell you know the joke that my parents forgot to get off the boat in Hawaii. They kept going all the way to Brazil. So I'm from the big island of Brazil, not the big island of Oahu. So you got one of the first Chinese restaurateurs in Brazil back you know after World War II. And so I basically was born and raised in Brazil. And we moved here in the mid-70s and been here since. What sort of Brazilian influences do you see at Oahu's? Well, we're one of the first restaurants in Orange County to serve black beans as opposed to the typical refried beans. That's right. Right? And we also do the seasoned white rice as opposed to the red Hispanic rice. Mm -hmm. So those are things that people say, whoa, where's my refried beans? And uh, what are those black things doing on my plate? <laughs> <laughs> well, not now, I imagine. It's it's gotten into the mainstream. Oh, yeah. Now you can't, you know, most restaurants offer the black beans option first as opposed to the refried. Mm-hmm. Well, let's go back to kind of the early days now. You and your brothers are going down to Mexico. Yep. You're surfing down there. You're eating street tacos that have the local fish. Yep. It's fresh fish. been yep. pulled out of the sea. But maybe it's been deep fried. Yep. Good stuff. But still, you're thinking, okay, how can we improve this? And you did what? Well, we basically started grilling it because, I mean, there's nothing better than a fried fish taco. Mm -hmm. But as you can tell, as we get older, fried things are not exactly our best friend. Mm -hmm. So you try to grill things because 
because the, you know in the grilling process you get rid of most of the excess fat and keep just basically what's already in it and it makes it for a little healthier option you don't have all that cholesterol all the fatty stuff that you don't body doesn't eat and what sort of fish go best in a in a taco can you name off maybe three or four or do you, do you use one in particular well we prefer to use uh, wahoo which is also the name of our restaurant because it's mm -hmm. a nice firm white fish mm -hmm. and it's very meaty and firm that's you know basically it's like they call it the chicken of the sea because it is very nice and mild but it still holds together uh, most of the other restaurants may try to use some kind of like a rock cod the problem with that is it, it falls apart very easily so you might have to coat it with maybe a breading or something to kind of hold it together because it's a more fragile fish it's not so firm so if you're going to try to do something on a grill try to find something that's a little meatier like any of the tunas swordfish shark those will hold together if you're going to saute it on a in a pan fry you can use basically tilapia anything that's mild that you know you can probably maybe use some kind of a coating to hold it together well again let me go back to some of the early days as well when you first started setting up shop here in orange county okay. you catered to surfers particularly and and where were you selling your uh, your food it wasn't at first out of a out of a restaurant you were just you were out there at the beach really just kind of hawking <laughs> tacos right well the way we did is we had the shop in costa mesa but the way to get the people to find out about you because you can't wait for them to show up to your front door mm -hmm. so i had to go to the beaches and say hey this is what we do in this little restaurant in costa mesa so after a surf contest you know basically you're out in the water three or four hours why not have some nice fresh rice and beans with some fish tacos right on the beach and the surfers really took to it initially, didn't they? Yeah. Because they're, they're, they're healthy eaters. I mean, somebody who's crazy enough to lug a restaurant on the sand, they're like, this guy's crazy. Why is he not <laughs> surfing with us? He's actually waiting for us to finish and serve us lunch. So they thought it was a nice treat for them. So they became supporters and advocates of our restaurant. Well, now, speaking to the season we're about to embark on tomorrow, Lent, does your business increase uh, during Lent, you actually see it. Yeah, it's really nice because all of a sudden, you know, there aren't too many restaurants in our category price point where they offer fresh grilled fish. And I would venture to say everybody has the steak, you know, the pork and the chicken, but very few offer fish as their main staple. So by having the nice offering, you can see not only, you know, the Catholics, but the Christians and everybody that follows, the, you know, the tradition of the holidays, you're going to see a nice little increase in uh, the traffic. Now, once you start coming accustomed to eating fish, now let's say we got somebody who really wants to be observant during Lent yeah. and abstain from meat, not just on Fridays, yeah. but every day. Yeah. Now, I imagine for somebody like yourself, who's a professional, <laughs> the idea of cooking every day without meat is no problem. Yeah. But is it something you get used to over time where you will go to the supermarket and you'll choose fish yeah. over meat uh, just naturally? Yeah, because, you know, as again, as we get older, our body doesn't necessarily processed meat as well as when we were younger. So you see a lot of what I call it issues with our health and most of it has to do with the kind of proteins we eat. Eating wild caught fish is probably one of the easier proteins for our body to digest. Well, I'm going to speak for many Catholics of a certain age when I say that Lent always brings back memories of our mother's <laughs> tuna casserole, which may or may not have been good, yeah. and fish sticks that they'd stick in our sack lunches. <laughs> and we grew up thinking, okay, that's fish. Yep. What can you tell kids today or parents of kids today who want to convince their children that 
okay, there's much better fish out there. Well, like I said, you know, the things that are frozen, prepackaged, you know, basically you just got to reheat it. I, I, I'm not really sure how good that really is for you. It doesn't really matter if it's fish or not. But we're talking about wild-caught fish that basically is available. It's very affordable. So we, we get a great offering. It tastes great, and it's got great side dishes. So you're just not eating fish. I mean, you got rice, you got beans, you can have salads. So there's different ways you can prepare a dish. So you can eat there for seven days and never have the same thing. For kids that may balk at fish for one reason or another, do you think they do it because they say it tastes fishy, or do they say that they don't like the consistency or something like? Is it that? Yeah, it's supposedly a texture thing and a taste, right? So the combination of fish, right? So if, again, you hide it underneath some stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Let's say you put a fish inside of a quesadilla, for instance. So it's kind of like a grilled cheese sandwich mm -hmm. made out of a flour tortilla. And then there's a little couple of pieces of fish in there. So there's different ways we can mask it. You can put it inside of a burrito with some black beans, and all of a sudden, the black bean takes over because it's very flavorful. And you can also use fish for the crowd that doesn't like the consistency. Well, Wahoo is a wonderful fish with a you know nice yeah. firm consistency. Swordfish, yep. same sort of thing. Yep. Well, wing lamb of Wahoo. Wahoo's Fish Tacos, thanks so much for coming by today and making us all ravenously hungry. <laughs> Listeners, give Wings recipes a try at any Wahoo's Fish Taco location. While you're out during Lent, uh, drop in and enjoy a really wonderful meal. That is it for another edition of Orange County Catholic Radio. Please join us again next Thursday at 11 a.m. for another hour of good talk and intriguing topics. You're tuned to Immaculate Heart Radio, AM 1000. I'm Patrick Mott.